Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with the start of Hispanic Heritage Month, today we're bringing you a show we're calling Latino DC. Washington's Latino population has been slowly growing over the past decade, from less than 8% back in 2000 to just about 10% today. Many suburban communities have also become Latino strongholds. Thirteen years ago, for instance, you could find about 100,000 Hispanic residents in Montgomery County, Maryland. Just two years ago, that number had reached more than 165,000. And today, Montgomery County is home to about a third of all Latinos in the state. So today, we're dedicating our show to our region's complex, diverse Latino community. We'll look at the role Latinos play in the arts scene. Everybody comes here, and I think that's the the power of this theater. And we'll hear how Virginia's gubernatorial candidates are engaging with Latino voters. I think part of the problem with our party is that we show up once every four years, five months before an election, and expect to have success. We'll also meet a transgender Latina who's reaching out to some of the city's most marginalized residents. LGBT homelessness. I lived it myself even after I had a lot of economic opportunities, and it can happen. First, in Prince George's County, Maryland, Latino leaders are protesting the lack of Latino representation on the newly reconstituted Board of Education. Latinos comprise about 25 percent of the county's school population and more than 16 percent of the county's total population. So these leaders are demanding that a task force examine whether Latinos are appropriately represented in the school system and in county government. Here in D.C., we've had several Latinos serve as deputy mayor, but you won't find any Latinos on either our state board of education or city council. And the lack of Latino representation on the latter has been especially vexing to D.C. native Joshua Lopez, whom I recently met at a cafe on 14th Street Northwest. For years, people have been saying, hey, we need a Latino on city council. We need more of a presence. Um, And I said, look, you know, I'm just going to run. You know, if we don't do it now, when are we ever going to do it? That was back in 2010, when Lopez, whose parents hail from Guatemala, was just 26 years old. Lopez has been interested in politics since he was a teenager. You know, I was outraged that the level of violence going on in the community, I wanted to do something about it. I started going to community meetings. And that's where he met then-council member Adrian Fenty, for whom Lopez would eventually work when Fenty became mayor. Fast forward to December 2010, and Lopez found himself announcing his candidacy for an at-large position on the city council. Can you talk about some of the points on your platform? I'm a big supporter of education reform. I went to DCPS. Um, Good government, good representation, having someone that's going to be, you know, representative of D.C. issues, Latino issues, young people issues, you know. Lopez ran against nine other people and wound up receiving about 3,000 votes, or 7% of the total. While he didn't win the at-large seat, he did win the distinction of being one of the only Latinos ever to run for city council. Carlos Rosario ran for the city council. That was during the 80s or late 70s, and we didn't have enough political clout in the city to get a Latino elected. And Sonia Gutierrez, president and founder of the Carlos Rosario International Public Charter School, remembers those days well. Back then, D.C.'s Latino community was in its infancy. Gutierrez, who was born in Puerto Rico, came to town in the early 1970s and says the community was basically in survival mode. In the 70s, there was a group of us under Rosario's leadership that were establishing community agencies because the main thing was to try to meet the needs of the people, and the needs were... Uh, educational, you know, for adults, educational for children, uh, health. 
So, thanks to this so-called old guard or vieja guardia, you saw new agencies crop up, like the Spanish Education Development Center, or SED Center, and the Program of English Instruction for Latin Americans, or PELA, which would eventually become Carlos Rosario. Later on came organizations like La Clinica del Pueblo and Mary's Center. We were making sure that they would run with the limited funding we have, but also that we would stay alive. At the same time, all of us were very involved politically because Carlos Rosario always told me from the beginning, if you love this program and you want it to survive, you have to become politically involved because in this city, everything is controlled by politics. In those days, political involvement meant some hands-on work with legislation. We wrote the legislation that established the mayor's office of Latino affairs. I still have cassettes of when Jose Gutierrez was dictating the legislation to me and I was taking notes and everything. But the old guard's primary political activity was advocating and lobbying on behalf of the Latino community, not running for city office. We were running these agencies day and night, Saturdays and Sundays. We were working for the community. We had no life. That's why, as Gutierrez puts it, there eventually arose a kind of void. There was not someone charismatic like, say, Carlos Rosario. And there were others within the group that were, but we were really extremely busy. So I think that even up to now, that void has not been filled. La Vieja Guardia, which is the old guard, they are now either retired or working for nonprofit organizations. And they're, you know, they're making a good living there. And they're comfortable. Johnny Itaco is the founder and publisher of the weekly newspaper Washington Hispanic. Do you see any up-and-coming young rising leaders in the community? Not in D.C. If you look at Montgomery County, if you look in Arlington, we do have good uh, Hispanic representation, but not in D.C. So uh, I think we need to change that. And one way to do it, Yataco says, is to encourage young Latinos to get involved in politics. He'd like to see more organizations like the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, agencies that seek to mentor and groom Latino youth as leaders. Angela Franco runs the Greater Washington Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and she says it's crucial to get all members of the Latino community not only to take on more leadership, but to increase involvement in the city as a whole. Hispanics are go-getters. We have a strong personality and entrepreneurs by heart, especially on the business side. So representing a city is having the community side, also having the business side, understanding the political side. is just really having an understanding of what the city is. You also need to be very, very knowledgeable of what the issues are, how to deal with them effectively. Again, Sonia Gutierrez. You need to know how the system works. And you need to be able to represent everybody in the city, not just Latinos. And that, says Joshua Lopez, is something he kept in mind during the 2011 election. I ran to be a good legislator. I didn't run to be a Latino on the council. You know, that's very important to me. But if you're going to be an elected official, you have to represent everyone. As for whether Lopez will try again to be an elected official, are you going to run again? Um, I'll definitely keep that option on the table. My former mentor told me, you don't need to be an elected official to help people. So whatever role I take on in the future, you know, I think I'll, I'll have a hands-on approach to trying to get things done in, in the community and in D.C. and in general.
So as D.C. Latinos like Joshua Lopez ponder their political future, politicians in Virginia are very much focused on wooing Latino voters right now. The Latino population in Virginia is booming. It's doubled in the past decade or so, and it's growing especially quickly in the D.C. suburbs. This change is part of what has turned Virginia purple on electoral maps. In the Commonwealth and nationwide, 70 percent of Latinos voted for Democratic candidates last year. This November's gubernatorial race is the first big election since then and a sort of test for Republican attempts to broaden the party's appeal. Jacob Fenston brings us this story on how that's working out. So Beckett is done. Now we go to... It's a beautiful Saturday morning in the rolling cul-de-sacs of Fairfax County. Teresa Speak and Lee Avila are part of a small army of Latinos going door to door. I'm Lee and this is Teresa and we're here with the Cuccinelli for Governor campaign. As you know, Governor Cuccinelli is looking to reduce taxes in Virginia. Second, he wants to reform our educational system. And third, he wants to stand up to the federal government. Avila says the planks in that platform match up nicely with many Latinos' beliefs. The values and traditions that we as Hispanics and Latinos have been brought up with are conservative, are family-oriented, and that's what our candidate stands for. Avila joined the GOP in the very first election in which she could vote back in college in Southern California. When I was a voting age, 18 years old, I was approached by the Democrat Party and told that I should have the candidates sign in my window. The Democrats, she says, took her vote for granted. She heard over and over, You're Latino, you should vote for Kerry Peck. And I said, who is Kerry Peck and why should I? Well, he's a Democrat. Tells me nothing. And they weren't interested in educating me. But when she sheepishly went to the Republicans, they had open arms. Teresa Speak is also a longtime Republican. I mean, under Reagan, we welcomed people. We lost it. So now we're coming back and we're saying, look, we need to open those doors and we need to include everybody in the party. I think part of the problem with our party is that we show up once every four years, five months before an election and expect to have success. Reince Priebus, chairman of the Republican National Committee. I think saying things like self-deportation is a pretty big issue. He's quoting Mitt Romney. The answer is self-deportation. I think watching your mouth... And things like that are important, and I think it was very hurtful to us in the Hispanic community. Those pest control people you suggested they bring in... Speaking of watching your mouth, this is Ken Cuccinelli calling into a conservative talk show on WMAL last year. The topic is pest control, and Cuccinelli has some misinformation about a D.C. law, which he says bans killing rats. Not only that, that's actually not the worst part. They cannot break up the family of the rat. <gasps> oh, no. And then he says... It is worse than our immigration policy. You can't break up rat family. Comparing immigration policy to rat extermination, maybe just a poor choice of words and off-the-cuff comments. But Cuccinelli has a long history of tough talk on immigration. In the Virginia General Assembly, he introduced a string of bills targeting immigrants. One urged Congress to change the Constitution so children of immigrants wouldn't gain automatic birthright citizenship. As Attorney General, he supported Arizona's controversial anti-immigrant law SB 1070 and issued an official opinion allowing Virginia police to inquire about immigration status at traffic stops. On CNN, he brushed aside concerns about racial profiling. 
Almost 3,000 people have been deported with the help of Prince William County in the last three or four years, just in one county. That's how many illegals were there. And we haven't had any problems with profiling, none. Since jumping into the race for governor, Cuccinelli has toned it down. He declined an interview for this story, but in a gubernatorial debate earlier this summer, he said he supports federal immigration reform. You know, I'm Italian. You can tell that from Cuccinelli. I'm also Irish. You can tell that from how feisty I am. Um, (laughs) And we're a nation of immigrants. This is an important issue to so many Americans, and it's part of our history. And we have embraced people who've come to this country who've embraced us. And that's something we should continue to do. The damage has been done. The damage has been done. Lenny Gonzalez is a Democratic activist in Arlington. She rolls her eyes at the idea that Republicans can win over Latinos simply by supporting immigration reform. It's, it's just hypothetical if they start talking about immigration reform, if they were doing anything, but they haven't stopped doing it for I don't know how many years now. So I am not sure that they will gain more Latinos. Polls show immigration isn't the top issue for Latino voters, but it's a close second after the economy. Latino voters are much less likely to vote for candidates who take hardline stances against undocumented immigrants, and they're more likely to vote for those who support passing the DREAM Act, which would allow in-state college tuition for some undocumented students. Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe has made passing a Virginia DREAM Act a central part of his platform. we got to make sure we're open and welcoming. We want everybody coming to Virginia. Cuccinelli opposed the Dream Act. My opponent has had a rigid ideological agenda. He runs for office saying he's going to focus on jobs and transportation. But once he gets into office, he brings a social ideological agenda to the table, which divides Virginians. It puts walls up around Virginia. But how much does it really matter whether Republicans win over Latinos in Virginia this November? Maybe not all that much, says Michael McDonald, a politics professor at George Mason University. Roughly about 8% of the Virginia population is Latino, but that's all people. That includes people who are under age 18 and people who aren't citizens of uh, the United States. In his office, he pulls up the U.S. Census Bureau website and grabs the most recent Virginia numbers. When you do the math, subtracting non-citizens and kids, only about 4% of potential voters are Latino. In this off-off-year election, he says... Maybe around 3% or so of the entire electorate will be Latino. So, he says, in 2013, it's entirely possible for a candidate to win in Virginia without Latino support. But that's going to change. According to one projection, Latinos will make up almost one-fifth of the state population by 2040. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break, but when we get back, why candidates for a presidency in another country are hitting the campaign trail in Washington, D.C. It's not only for the vote, but also for donations and for the support. Plus the scam that's increasingly targeting Latinos in our region. She have everything, everything. She have a copy of my passport, my last work authorization, my um, social security, day of my birth, everything. That and more is coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is Latino D.C., and we've been hearing quite a bit about the role Latinos play in our local politics. Well, we're going to stay on the campaign trail for just a bit longer and turn to an election taking place far, far away. Roughly one in three Hispanics in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia come from the tiny Central American nation of El Salvador, where next year residents will be choosing a new president. And as Martin Ostermule tells us, the local diaspora will, for the first time, play a role in selecting the winner. Washington, D.C. is thousands of miles away from El Salvador, 1,887 miles to be exact. But in May, that's how far Salvadoran presidential candidate Norman Quijano found himself from the country he one day hopes to govern. Quijano was speaking to supporters from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, hoping to turn their support into victory in the presidential election scheduled for February 2, 2014. The conservative candidate isn't alone. His left-leaning challenger, Salvador Sanchez-Seren, has made similar trips north, hitting D.C., Los Angeles, and other U.S. cities. That's because this is the first year U.S.-based Salvadorans are being given the chance to fully exercise their democratic rights by casting ballots from abroad. And that change adds up to a lot of potential new voters. Close to 2 million Salvadorans currently call the U.S. home. Locally, there are nearly a quarter million Salvadorans, and they make up the highest proportion of foreign-born residents in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. After L.A., uh, the Washington, D.C. area is the second largest in the United States. And so you'll see that presidential candidates are going to come here. You know, it's not only for the vote, but also for donations and for the the support. And, and what they want to be able to say is that they do support the Salvadoran uh, living abroad. That's Ana Sol Gutierrez, who was born in El Salvador and since 2003 has represented a portion of Montgomery County in the Maryland House of Delegates. For her, it's not just the number of potential voters that attract hopeful candidates to our region, but also what they're worth to their home country's economy. Remittances, remesas are a huge part of our gross national product, as you know, down in El Salvador. How huge a part? In 2012, Salvadorans abroad sent back just shy of $4 billion, or fully 10% of the country's economy. That money adds weight to personal and political relationships that span the two countries. Ruben Zamora is El Salvador's ambassador to the U.S., in 1994, he ran for president as a candidate of the leftist FMLN party, though he didn't win. Zamora says economic ties between Salvadoran towns and the diaspora abroad are so closely intertwined that when U.S.-based immigrants offer political insight, their friends and family in El Salvador listen. Since they're always in touch using everything from letters to Skype, those here that recommend a candidate carry weight. Because underneath that advice is the remittance. Ambassador Zamora also points out that the country's biggest political parties, FMLN and ARENA, have satellite offices in various U.S. cities. They organize events for the candidates and provide money and resources to struggling campaigns. He recalls that during one of his runs for office, U.S.-based supporters wanted to offer his campaign some American flair, so they tried to send him a campaign bus. And yet, despite those sorts of close political ties, Zamora expects very few Salvadorans will actually cast ballots in the presidential election, a reality that Zamora blames on the complexities of registering to vote outside of El Salvador. The complications of registering, along with a relatively short window to do so, have made it so that while Salvadorans can, for the first time, cast ballots from abroad, 
the number that will is relatively low. How low? He says only 10,000 U.S.-based Salvadorans will be able to cast ballots. Anasol Gutierrez, for her part, won't be one of them. Instead, she'll do what she's always done to vote, go home. My only way to vote, uh, which is the way I voted in previous elections, is to go uh, to El Salvador to cast my, my vote. Samora hopes more Salvadorans will register to vote in upcoming elections. But even if they don't, presidential candidates like Norman Quijano will keep coming up to the area to campaign. The local Salvadoran community may be far from home, but members aren't missing a chance to have their voices heard. I'm Martin Osmiel. We turn now from campaigns to cons, more specifically a type of con that's increasingly targeting local Latinos. It's known as notario fraud. In a nutshell, here's how it works. You have these people passing themselves off as lawyers, right? And they give all this advice on immigration and citizenship cases, and then they charge for it. Latinos in the district are particularly at risk of falling victim to this sort of fraud, according to a recent report by Georgetown University and the nonprofit organization Ayuda. Caitlin Dickerson has the story. Maria Castro just moved into a new apartment in Reston, Virginia. No, that's okay. Castro doesn't have any furniture yet, and her voice echoes off the bare walls. Before moving here, she was homeless. Castro immigrated to the U.S. from Guatemala in 1991. She's been defrauded twice since then and lost more than $13,000. The first time, a notario she found in the newspaper said he could help her get a green card. I didn't know the area. I asked someone what I can do. It's many lawyers over there. And I hired one. A green card came in the mail, but it was fake. When Castro showed up at the notario's office, the business was gone. Humiliated and worried about losing her legal status, Castro turned to a co-worker for advice. She re- referred me to this lady because the lady supposed to be was lawyer. She speaks Spanish. I think was good because it's my language. After a consultation and payment, Castro waited months for news about her immigration case. She checked in periodically with the lawyer who assured her these things take time. But eventually, the notario disappeared. I was waiting and waiting for her. I went to the office, and the office was closed. She moved, and I didn't know where she go. And that was the same thing that happened with the last one? Exactly. But this is, last one was so, so hard because it was someone in my own language, someone in Spanish, doing those to Spanish people. It's hard because you believe in your own people. And that's, now I don't believe in anybody. Law clerk Annie Shoyfile has seen a lot of cases like Castro's. She works for Ayuda, an advocacy organization for immigrants, and right now she's flipping through a thick binder of Spanish-language advertisements from local newspapers. So this is an ad for loan modifications, but then it also says, if you'd like to travel to these countries in Central America with permission, we can complete your documents. And that service is a legal service. Fraudulently passing yourself off as an attorney is illegal in the district. But victims are often hesitant to go to the police for fear of putting their legal status into question. Shoy Filet says perpetrators of this kind of scam often target victims by setting up shop alongside other businesses commonly used by immigrants. 
Typically, the business may be also a travel agency or a remittance sending service, or even we've seen a local community grocery store. These fraudulent legal service providers take advantage of the language barrier many immigrants face. A notario in Mexico is someone who has already served as an attorney for five years and has passed a rigorous exam and is of good moral character. So putting the name notario on a sign somewhere in the D.C. metro area, someone seeing that might think that that person is even better than seeking services from an attorney. Maria Castro thought she was being helped by qualified attorneys. But by the second time she was scammed, her temporary work authorization had run out, she was out of a job, and had lost thousands of dollars. Unable to pay her rent, Castro ended up in a shelter that connected her with Ayuda. The organization helped her regain temporary legal status, get a new job, and move into her own place. Castro acknowledges she's come a long way. I think when they saw you in need, and specifically you are a woman and you are Spanish, they think you are stupid. Sorry for my language. And it's a big mistake because I am a smart lady, I'm a hard worker, I'm an honest person. Law clerk Annie Schoifele and other immigrant advocates say these scams will become more common if Congress approves a bill overhauling the nation's immigration system. They say such a reform would likely open the floodgates to people seeking legal help and turning to notarios offering to solve their problems for a price. I'm Caitlin Dickerson. You can learn more about notario fraud and check out a report on the topic by Georgetown Law's Community Justice Project on our website. MetroConnection.org. So earlier in the show, we talked about the mass migration of Salvadorans to the D.C. region. And our next story focuses on a Salvadoran activist named Ruby Corrado. Corrado had big dreams when she came to D.C. as a teenager. But as a transgender Latina, she's found it hasn't always been easy to make those dreams a reality. These days, Corrado is running a multicultural center for LGBT people, and she wants to do even more to help Washingtonians who are living on the margins. Lauren Ober brings us her story. Ruby Corrado never expected it would happen to her. She had a good job, friends who loved her, and she was a contributing member of her community. But then... I was the victim of a sexual assault in 2008, and I lost everything, and I became homeless. As a transgender woman living in the district, Corrado had seen scores of LGBT friends lose housing and end up on the streets. She just never thought she'd be among them. But after being beaten and raped in her home, Corrado turned to drugs to cope. She ended up couch surfing for months while she pieced her life back together. LGBT homelessness, it is a real issue. I lived it myself even after I had a lot of economic opportunities. And it can happen. You're not immune to it. Corrado is the founder and executive director of Casa Ruby, a nonprofit serving LGBT communities of color. People can swing by the three-story townhouse on Georgia Avenue to get a free meal, use the internet, or catch some Spanish-language telenovelas on TV. But Corrado wants to do more. Her own bout of homelessness and her work at Casa Ruby planted a seed, and now she wants to open the first adult LGBT homeless shelter in D.C. 
If it gets off the ground, the shelter would be one of the first in the country to cater to LGBT adults. The one thing I learned through my own transition, through my own life, is that I have to be persistent. I am hoping and I'm praying that I will get a shelter by the end of the year. Corrado is a plus-size force of nature, with flowing black hair and red nails so long it's a wonder how she operates her iPhone. She came to the U.S. in 1986. Her native El Salvador was engaged in a civil war, and fleeing was the safest option for her family. A few years after she arrived in D.C., she knew there was something different about her. When I got here, I basically got educated through the movies, and I knew that there were people that were gay. So my thing was, well, I am gay because I like other men. That's what I thought. But as I started seeing more about the culture, I realized that I was a little more gay than most (laughs) gays. A move to DuPont Circle in the late 90s exposed Corrado to the city's transgender community. But coming out as trans was dangerous, even deadly. Transgender women were often brutalized, and authorities were less than sensitive to their needs. If a trans woman made it past 30, she was considered an elder in the community. I knew that was going to be a a choice that was going to bring negative consequences, but it just felt right. Growing up in El Salvador helped embolden her. There was something that took me back to the years when I grew up in a country that had a civil war. So I had come from a childhood that I was used to seeing dead bodies on the street. I was used to hearing the helicopters and the shootings. War, Corrado says, prepared her for her personal battles and for her work as an activist. It didn't matter that my sisters were getting killed. I wanted to speak up. Casa Ruby opened its doors in June of 2012. Since then, the center has served more than 700 clients. They come to Casa Ruby for help with all types of issues. Immigration, employment, housing, you name it, and Corrado has seen it. About half of her clients identify as transgender or gender nonconforming. Many of these individuals have left their countries due to persecution based on sexual orientation. And they carry with them this stigma uh, for being different, from being unique, for expressing openly their gender identity. That's Henry Mati Carina, a volunteer at Casa Ruby. And he being at Casa Ruby, we provide them with a safe space where they can express their gender identity and their sexual orientation openly without fear of being verbally harassed or bullied. Corrado has seen how Casa Ruby filled a void for LGBT communities of color here in the district. Now she wants to do the same with her proposed homeless shelter. And the need, she says, is critical. A recent survey showed that 40% of D.C.'s transgender population has been homeless at some point due to discrimination. And many were denied entry into shelters because of their gender status. I don't care if it takes me another 20 years But I will have the resources to help the people that come to Casa Ruby. And I think that because I am committed to that, one day it will come. That optimism is welcomed by people like Ricky Falcone, who lost his job and his apartment last winter and has been living in a shelter. He's a Casa Ruby client as well as a volunteer, and he's hoping to find a permanent place to live soon. I would love to see this place become what we want it to be. You know, a shelter, somewhere where people could come in, I feel comfortable, don't feel threatened by society. feel that I could go to Casa Ruby and I'm home. I'm actually home. 
And everyone will have a place at Ruby's house. I'm Lauren Ober. After the break, we'll visit a D.C. theater that's been bringing Spanish-language works to the stage for nearly 40 years. You cannot translate a culture when you, you make adaptations of plays in another language. So the American audiences who don't speak Spanish can understand, but at the same time have that direct experience of our culture. And we'll chow down on the cuisine of Mexico as we continue our Eating in the Embassy series. If you go into a Mexican kitchen no matter where it is in the world, and you don't see smoke, and you don't hear sizzle, and you don't see bubbles, don't eat the food. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as Hispanic Heritage Month begins, today we're looking at the vibrant Latino community that calls the Washington region home. Up next on our Latino DC show, we'll visit a Columbia Heights institution that's spent nearly four decades presenting theater with a different accent, so to speak. But before we take the stage, we'll grab a bite. It's the newest installment in our series, Eating in the Embassy, where we team up with local food blog Eater DC and chew the fat, sometimes quite literally, with chefs at Washington's many international embassies. This time around, we visit a chef who's intimately familiar with the cuisine of Mexico and the many misconceptions she feels surround it. Our food is not always spicy. Our food doesn't always have a chili in it. And when it does, it's not necessarily a spicy chili. The ancho chili is sweet. The guajillo chili is happy. This is Mexico City native Patty Hinich. You might know her from the PBS show Patty's Mexican Table. And surprisingly for people... Mexican food is usually very healthy and wholesome and uses ingredients from scratch. We love salads. We just don't call them that. You know, we'll call them nopalitos, chayotitos. We call them by the name of the ingredient. Here in the bright white kitchen of the Mexican Cultural Institute, which is kind of like the Mexican embassy's cultural arm. It's dedicated to promoting arts, food, history, music. We're about to cook up a very healthy and wholesome dish from scratch. A traditional Mexican breakfast, actually. Huevos ahogados, sunken eggs. And eggs, says Patty, are huge in Mexico. Mexico is a powerhouse of salsas, and eggs are incredibly cheap and accessible and affordable, and they're full of protein. So when you match the gazillion million salsas with this one magical ingredient, you get like a thousand different ways of eating eggs. We love eggs. But it takes more than just eggs and salsa to whip up this version of sunken eggs. As Patty explains, you need one more very special traditional ingredient, the fleshy hand-sized pad of the prickly pear cactus. So here I have cactus paddles, nopalitos, which are an icon for Mexicans. You see nopales not only in every kitchen, instead of meat. I'm convinced that this will be the rage of vegetarians one day when they sell them without the thorns because they're very persnickety. But they're super meaty and crunchy and tart and tasty. But anyway, you see them in the kitchens, but you also see them in some of the most famous paintings and sculptures. The Mexican flag has an eagle standing on a cactus paddle eating a snake. That's how strongly we feel about (laughs) Not palace. So I am so happy you're going to get to eat them today. So this is my favorite way of cooking them. 
You remove the thorns. How do you remove the thorns without, I don't know, hurting yourself? Yes. So highly recommended to wear gloves. I don't wear gloves because I'm very macho. But um, <laughs> but highly recommend wearing gloves. And then with a knife or with a vegetable peeler, then you go around and remove the edge and the bottom and then you slice them, dice them. So you can saute them as I am doing here. I cooked them for 20 minutes before you guys got here with a lead. And now, as you see, they're browning beautifully. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to pour a salsa on top. In Mexico, we love, love, love salsas. They run through our veins. We have them from breakfast to dinner. It's the most beautiful color green. What's in that salsa? Right. Okay, so tomatillos, jalapeños, a garlic clove, cilantro and onion then this is your basic salsa verde now i'm gonna pour it on top of the nopales so you see you have the tart from the nopal which will be crunchy on the outside and chewy and then you'll have the super tart and punchy but very homey taste of the salsa verde so it's gonna it's gonna make a sound oh i've got to record that okay, okay. you want i always say in my classes if you go into a mexican kitchen no matter where it is in the world and you don't see smoke and you don't hear sizzle and you don't see bubbles don't eat the food it's not gonna be good (laughs) okay so now this is gonna cook and see so now the tomatoes jalapenos and garlic were already cooked but this is like a double step to enhance the flavor and concentrate it now the great thing is if you make this salsa verde you can use it to drown some eggs, which is what we're going to do here. Drown eggs? Yes. Yes. That sounds a little violent. (laughs) (laughs) On my way here, I was thinking, I'm so glad we're making drowned eggs. And I kept thinking drunk eggs, not not drunk drown. (laughs) Um, If you added a splash of tequila, they would be drunk too. Um, But we love drowning eggs in any kind of salsa so you know how in other countries they have the very elegant poached eggs and then sometimes they'll add salsas on top well we directly cook the eggs in the salsa and so there is no way that you can end up with a dish where you taste the egg and it's sort of bland and then you taste the sauce here they cook together So now I have the sauce boiling and ready. I'm going to lower the heat so that when I add my eggs to drown them or poach them in there, they won't break or crumble. So that's a secret for good poached eggs. You want simmering sauce, but at a super gentle heat. I do one by one. And you do it in a cup so that it goes in the sauce together at the same time because the moment it touches the hot hot sauce the egg starts cooking and you want it to look sort of pretty i love it the way you're putting them around the edge sort of circular like that it makes a lovely little pattern exactly and then when you bring it at the table you saw how easy that was when you bring it at the table people are like whoa how did the eggs come out like that you must have spent hours slaving over a hot stove exactly Patty Hinnich is the chef at the Mexican Cultural Institute and host of the public television show Patty's Mexican Table. Season 3 premieres this January. Her cookbook, Patty's Mexican Table, The Secrets of Real Mexican Home Cooking, is out now. Food is good. La comida es rica. I like to eat it. Me gusta comerla. I like fruit. Me gusta 
gusta la fruta the apples, Las manzanas the bananas, Las bananas the lemons, Los limones the oranges, Las naranjas the cherries, La cereza the strawberry, Las fresas the pineapple, La piña We'll move now from the kitchen to the stage, specifically the stage of D.C.'s long-running Gala Hispanic Theater. Gala has been sharing Latino arts and culture with a diverse audience here in the district for 38 years, even as the company, and the city it calls home, have gone through a lot of changes. Lauren Landau visited the theater on its home turf in Columbia Heights to learn about Gala's history, its role in the community, and its newest world premiere play. Up on the stage of the historic Tivoli Theater, a group of actors are busy running lines and reviewing their choreography. It's crunch time for the cast and crew of Cabaret Barroco, Interludes of Spain's Golden Age, which opens this week at Gala Hispanic Theater. Comenzamos. Primera jornada, donde explicamos que el amor siempre hiere. In 17th century Spain, entremeses, or interludes, were performed as breaks during longer plays. But in Cabaret Barroco, the brief one-act comedies by classical Spanish playwrights take center stage, while other shorter scenes fill in the gaps. Vamos, ¿lo tenemos claro? Pregunto. Jose Luis Arellano lives in Madrid, but came all the way to D.C. to direct the world premiere play. It's a new play, but with different kind of materials, classical Baroque materials, with new music, modern music, old music, um, and of course a, lo- a lot of fun and a lot of love <laughs> on stage. This will be his fifth time working with Gala, which he says is well known in Spanish theater circles. Fellow Spaniard David Peralto co-wrote the production's original score with Alberto Granados. He says part of the reason why Gala's reputation precedes it is that, in addition to presenting high-quality productions, the theater is one of the few venues bringing Spanish-language theater to an American audience. The lack of theaters that do place in Spanish in the United States is amazing. Peralto says having Gala here in D.C. is a gift. This is something that you guys really have to preserve because uh, to have a theater producing in Spanish in a country where there are 50 million Spanish speakers is a need and it's something that you really have to defend and support. Artistic director Hugo Medrano co-founded the theater in 1976 with his wife Rebecca. GALA stands for Grupo de Artistas Latinoamericanos and that sense of cross-cultural unity is a big part of the group's identity. Hugo says the actors hail from countries all over the world, which accounts for the different accents audiences can hear during the theater's performances. We have uh, guest artists from uh, Spain, from Argentina, from Mexico, Venezuela, Peru. I mean, we, we're really trying to reach out, not only in D.C., but reach out to other countries, because that's what we are, a group of Latin American artists. In its early years, Hugo says Gala focused on serious theater that required audiences to come in with a certain education and prior knowledge of drama. But he says there was a precise moment when D.C.'s Latino population started to shift, and Gala changed with it. We have to stop and start to think what kind of new audience we have right now. It's less, I would say, educated at the time because they were coming from the mountains and everything. As more and more refugees fled from conflicts in Central American countries such as El Salvador, Hugo and the folks at Gala were confronted by a new target audience and the question of how to draw these newcomers into the theater. 
they were much more kind of peasant community, much more interested toward the music than the theater in itself. So we have to accommodate our season to introduce some kind of play that were much more musical-oriented, much more immediate community-oriented. But as Gala switched things up to reflect an evolving Latino audience, it also kept its English-speaking patrons in mind. We did theater in Spanish with simultaneous translation through headphones at the beginning. And also we did one performance in Spanish, the next day in English. We did also bilingual children's theater, which is simultaneous English and Spanish during the performance. The theater eventually traded the headphones in for sortitolos, translations of the text that run above the stage. Celia Wren is a freelance writer and frequent contributor to the Washington Post. She's been covering gala for several years and says even though she doesn't speak Spanish, it hasn't prevented her from understanding or enjoying the plays. A play is much more than a series of words. It's the visuals, it's the lighting, the costumes, the scenic design, the movement, the stage composition, you've got the sound. She says that those elements, combined with the actor's body language, facial expression, and tone of voice, help communicate meaning in a way that bypasses language. And I know that I've seen at Gala some productions where the visuals were so powerful that they, like, made the hair at the back of my neck stand up. She says American theater tends to be really Anglo-centric, but she predicts Spanish-language plays will be more common in the future. Back at Gala, Chilean actress Natalia Miranda Guzman and her fellow cast members are warming up their vocal cords. The petite, curly-haired actress says Gala not only brings people from different backgrounds together on stage, but also in the audience. I've met ambassadors, people from the consulate, and at the same time, my friends from the cafeteria in front of the theater come to see me because in between rehearsals, I get to know them. Everybody comes here, and I think that's the, the power of this theater. Before joining the Gala family, Natalia spent three years working exclusively with English language plays. But she says there's something special about acting in her native tongue. When you come back to Spanish-speaking theater, I don't know, you get, you get, it's your culture, you know, you were born there. You just feel it differently. It's freedom. It's freedom. I'm Lauren Landau. Cabaret Barroco runs through October 6th. You can learn more about that production and about Gala Hispanic Theater on our website, metroconnection.org. turn the microphone to you and read from your letters and emails. Last week, Jacob Fenston brought us the story of George Lincoln Rockwell, the man who established the American Nazi Party. Rockwell set up his headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, and listener Arlington 70s Kid remembers the scene well. I was a teenager in Arlington in the 70s. I remember walking by the Nazi headquarters where there was usually a man standing at attention outside of the front door wearing a Nazi uniform. It was an eerie sight. And a few weeks ago, Lauren Ober reported on a program that teaches local kids how to fish on the Anacostia River. That report generated this comment on our website from Mary Finelli, the president of an organization called Fish Feel. 
Why use violence, which fishing is, to try to teach children to appreciate and respect the river, she writes. There are so many productive ways to teach children patience and awareness and care. Bird watching, insect watching, and searching for and identifying various plant life are but a few examples. Catch and release is very harmful to fish, and many subsequently die from the trauma and injury. But listener Bill disagreed. He responded, This was a truly excellent piece. Anyone who knows anything about nature knows how therapeutic it can be for humans. Fishing is one of the few ways that children can truly experience nature in a hands-on way. I appreciate all the potential learning experiences that Lauren identified in this piece. Let's keep our priorities straight. If you have a message you'd like to send us, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Lauren Landau, and Martin Ostermule, along with reporters Lauren Ober and Caitlin Dickerson. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show today, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we go theme-free and bring you one of our Wild Cards shows. We'll meet a more than 100-year-old woman who's finding her artistic side after going blind. We'll head back to the Chesapeake Bay for part two in our series on climate change and Smith Island. We'll bake Bialis at a brand new restaurant in D.C.'s Penn Quarter. And we'll lace up our sneaks and hit the court with a world-class player of dodgeball. Lauren, are you ready? I'm ready. Ooh. That got me. That got me. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of that. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.